Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. I'm very happy to have on Dr. Shai, who is an expert on the topic we're going to be talking about today, um, a very important topic. Uh, so I'm very happy to have her on. And I want to start off by saying, welcome. Uh, how are you? I am well, thank you. How are you? I am I'm well in these times. I am well. Yeah. So I met Dr. Shine, I think, uh, when I was a student at Chicago. Um, as far as I remember, uh, she was a TA in one of the um, uh, Intro to Islamic History and Thought classes. And you also ended up giving a really interesting lecture during the lecture point, a portion of that uh, class. I don't know if you remember. I remember it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very happy to have her on. I'm just hoping you can give us a brief introduction about yourself, your research interests, your, your education. Sure. So first of all, I think that might actually have been the first lecture that I ever gave to a class. So you have uh, the dubious privilege of having witnessed me at my, my rawest form. Um, but uh, to give, me, uh, give you a brief bio uh, of my background, I put myself on a trajectory to enter into Near Eastern studies from fairly early on as a student in high school, actually, I think is when it really began, uh, with taking art history classes and being spellbound by calligraphy, by mosque architecture, by all of the non-Western art that was native to the Middle East, to North Africa, uh, that we only glossed over very briefly in those classes, but that I found breathtaking. So I started taking Arabic, Uh, language the summer before college. I pursued it throughout college, got my BA in uh, Arabic studies with a classical Arabic or medieval studies focus and in political science, but with a political theory focus. So I sometimes joke that I did the um, most non-operable versions of both degrees. (laughs) And then I went directly into the PhD program at the University of Chicago in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, where I continued to focus on classical Arabic literature, but also venture into what is often referred to as Middle Arabic literature, that Arabic literature that exists prior to the solidification of what we consider colloquial dialects, but still has a a colloquial or conversational register to it that is different from what we think of with very mannered adab texts. And within that corpus, I focused especially on the popular siras or the sir abiyya tradition, uh, which are often translated as popular epics. And these texts uh, have a wide representation of various kinds of characters of particular interest to a lot of people have been the fact that they spotlight warrior women. So I started out with those texts as a sort of gender focus and moved fairly quickly from the study of gender and sexuality in these texts into the study of race on the knowledge that in order to understand motherhood, kinship networks, interrelations, I had to understand all the different types of players who are being manifested into the works. I'm very excited about today's conversation, so I'm just going to get started right away, and I'm going to ask, can we speak about race when we speak about the past? Yeah, so of course that's a very big question, and the short answer to it is yes, but with certain caveats. So the sorts of essentialisms that some philosophers now describe as quote-unquote racialism, or the belief that all people have some kind of underlying racial essence that transmits genealogically, so from generation to generation, 
and that is often but not always perfectly indicated by how they look, their physical features, has existed in most societies throughout human history in some form or another. The difference between this word racialism and racism is simply that one, racialism is hierarchical, is uh, not hierarchical, excuse me, while racism is. So I can believe, for example, that all different peoples have different racial essences without necessarily viewing one as better than the other. Racism says that they are. Now, of course, the one, the former, often produces the latter. Um, in Arabic literature from the Middle East and North Africa, the populations delimited by these racialized ideas of group membership nowadays are in many places not so different from what we see in the pre-modern period. And the stigmas that attend them are also things that carry across several centuries. So for example, a commonplace insult to this day in various parts of the Middle East is to refer to black-skinned people as Abid, as slaves. And this is something that has its seed even in literature from the formative period of Islam. Uh, this association between black people through the trans-Saharan slave trade, through the density of African people who were seen in these social positions with slave status. Now, there are different ways of answering, though, the question of is race something that's modern or pre-modern? And within the field of critical race theory, which began as a field in American schools of law that looked at power structures and how they manifested in legal cases and still has a very Euro-American focus, race has historically thought to be, uh, been thought to be a 19th century onward phenomenon, something that was invented in the modern period. And a lot of the effort in critical race theory since to change this narrative uh, which has been grounded in pushback from some really stellar medievalists like Geraldine Hang, like David Nirenberg, and up-and-comers uh, in the field like Mohamed Balan, uh, has been to basically move the goalposts backward to say, okay, so if it doesn't start in the modern period, when does race start being an operative term for how human societies organize themselves? And many recent works have said, therefore, that race must begin in late medieval Spain because of laws like limpieza de sangre, which is an idea of blood purity that transcended things like religious conversion and that structured your legal life. But there are a few important problems with this that relate to my interest in being able to talk about race earlier on still. Uh, the first is that if you trace race to the early modern period or to late medieval Spain, it blinders us to racial classifications and racisms that work in systematically different or subsystematic ways by placing emphasis on a legal or statist set of actions that we relate to as modern people. So limpieza de sangre would be a sort of symbol that we can relate to through modern iterations of systemic racism. The second is that it presumes that blood kinship and blood transmission was the only normative way historically of thinking about heredity. And in the Muslim world, this is definitely not always the case. So you see a visible anxiety in certain medieval texts about the capacity of things like milk kinship or rada, this idea that you can nurse people outside of your family and make them a part of your family, or contamination of the notva, which is a word mentioned in the Quran that's usually translated as sperm droplet, but is constitutive of the fetal tissue and isn't made of blood, uh, that the contamination of these things or the interactions of them can alter one's, one's visible resemblance to your blood kin. Um, and moreover, if we trace race's beginnings to Spain, this also traces races to what we might call the beginning of cognate language for race in Romance vocabularies, especially the word raza in Spanish, uh, which comes from animal husbandry and relates to the idea of a lineage or a type. But there's a very robust vocabulary uh, in classical Arabic for articulating similar types of groupings and the immutable inheritance of identities. Some of them are also derived from animal husbandry. So a great example of this is nesab this idea that you have a lineage that carries patrilineally. Uh, erk, uh, this idea of a root, 
Um, a familial root operates very similarly. And then there's also the word onsor, which is often used to mean your kin, your tribe. So you have all of these ideas of sort of lineage uh, within the Arabic tradition that become racialized as the Arabian Peninsula's sort of worldview expands in the formative period of Islam. Thank you so much for that. And I think it's important that we establish a type of foundation as we, as we go about this conversation. And so I wanted to move on and, and ask, uh, do we find organization of people according to certain characteristics in the Quran or Hadith literature? What are these organizing principles if, if, they, if they exist? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a really great question. There are, of course, multiple ways in which people are organized into social entities and groupings in the Quran. A lot of these relate to family or to tribe or to political and sovereign arrangements. So, for example, you have the existence of kingdoms and polities like Byzantium or the erstwhile kingdoms or Aden and Thamud. Um, and it's therefore remarkable to a lot of scholars that the Quran actually doesn't seem to address race explicitly. Now, having said that, there are a few verses in the Quran that are interpreted as obliquely dealing with racialized divisions or having a racial subtext. And in modern, more liberatory theologies are actually interpreted directly as overtly racial. Uh, one of these is verse 22, the 22nd ayah of Surah Al-Rum, um, which says that people were made with different tongues and different colors. Uh, and the other one is from Al-Hujarat, verse 13, and it says, God made you into peoples and tribes in order that you may know one another. And the exegetical traditions around these verses are quite telling for how people in a Quranic milieu, people in the environment into which the Quran was delivered, might have been understanding the meaning of those verses. So for the passage in Surah Al-Rum that deals with tongues and co colors, um, Many exegetes interpret this as indicating people who are Arab and Ajam, people who speak Arabic and don't, and then people who are black, white, and red, quote-unquote, with red, Ahmar, often also being used to mean brown, or in the middle between black and white. Uh, so they extrapolate this onto global sort of color divisions of all humanity. You have, however, infrequently with uh, commentators like Ibn Kathir, the idea that, oh no, this refers to the fact that all humans are at least a little bit different from everybody else. So God's creative genius lies not in these sort of broad scope divisions, but in the very minute details of how a different uh, how different humans look from one another on a granular level. Now, in the case of the verse, God made you into peoples and tribes in order that you may know one another, uh, which then ends by saying that the most esteemed amongst you in God's eyes is the most righteous of you. Um, the asbab al-nizul, or the reasons for revelation, uh, tell us a story of social divisions that were already embedded in the Jahiliya community and that were manifesting even amongst the Prophet's companions. Because it's said that the reason for the deliverance of this verse is that when Mecca is conquered by the Muslims, Muhammad asks Bilal, uh, so Bilal al-Habashi, the freed Ethiopian slave who was a companion of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, to ascend the Kaaba and to give the adhan, to give the call to prayer. And a bunch of the Prophet's companions all say, oh, could he not find anybody else to do this? Why would he pick this black crow? Why would he pick this slave? Uh, and so this verse on that occasion is sent down to indicate, you know, Bilal is more righteous than you. He deserves this prestigious position. So... The Quran itself, in other words, doesn't offer up these organizing principles, but its early interpreters read these organizing principles into and out of the text of the Quran. Now, then you have, of course, the corpus of the Hadith tradition. 
And what I'll cautiously call the authenticated Hadith corpus is generally agreed um, by most people to be very egalitarian in focus. It encourages the equal treatment of people regardless of color and kind, much like the Bilal story does. But not often in language that resonates today with what we think of when we think of equality or egalitarian discourse necessarily. A great example of this is the Hadith that says you should obey your Amir even if he's an Abd Habashi. And there are variations on this. You should obey your Amir even if he's an Ethiopian slave whose head looks like a raisin, an Ethiopian slave with cropped ears, so on and so forth. Uh, and versions of this circulated certainly amongst the Khawarish. Patricia Krona has written something about this. Um, so it's this egalitarian principle that says anybody can be a ruler regardless of external appearance. But it's couched in this very big despite despite the emir looking this way, or even though he looks this way, you should still give him the respect that is due his position. Um, so this is something that's very different from what we think of now uh, as egalitarianism, which is really a multicultural sort of celebration of difference. Uh, it's saying we give you acceptance, although you look this way, as opposed to because you look this way. Um, another area that the Hadith corpus targets uh, in order to propound an egalitarian discourse is the idea of ta'an fil ansab, insulting people on the basis of lineage, which is something that the prophet militates against very directly in a series of sayings. Uh, some of these have to do with the linking historically of nasab and hasab, the idea that within your genealogy, your nasab, you inherit the legacy of the achievements of your ancestors, their hasab. Uh, so the prophet, for example, says that your hasab lies with your deen, deen, it lies with your religion, it lies with your faithfulness, and no longer with uh, the, say, martial achievements of your ancestors. But it's also something that the prophet himself acknowledges his community is going to have difficulty with. So he says, my community has four things from the age of ignorance that it will not relinquish. And the first two that he names are the boasting of inherited merit, or ahseb, and the insulting of one another's lineages, or anseb. Um, and you can see how in his attempts to deal with the problem of ta'anfil anseb, which at the time that he was focusing on them, was mostly a tribalistic, internecine, Arabian problem, sort of balloon into a big set of racial questions or racialized questions as Islam moves outward from the Arabian Peninsula, as Arabs move outward from the Arabian Peninsula and they interact with other groups who aren't part of the sort of tribal matrix and who are very different from themselves. So in short, the Quran and Hadith allude to these certain characteristics that are organizing principles, as you called them, but often in a way that's meant to diffuse them, or that's meant to say, these don't matter in the wider transcendental scope of a universal religion or of seeking al-akhirah and all of these other things. So I uh, thank you for that. Uh, and so as you move on, I wanted to ask, how did scholars or writers conceptualize or explain the differences between human beings? I mean, what is this? What is the first attempt uh, among Muslims to organize people according to, to these differences? And, and how seriously were these uh, conceptions taken? Yeah, um, so scholars conventionally had two main avenues through which they conceptualized human racial difference. Uh, the first of which was through climate, basically the theory that people at different corners of the earth, because of the way that they're very divergent climates, hot, cold, wet, dry mixes thereof, act upon their humors. Uh, humors being an idea inherited from Greco-Roman understandings of how the human body works. Um, 
because of these forces, you will look different from the people living in other environments. And so if you say, live in a very harsh, dry environment, um, your skin will be darker than if you live in a very cold and wet environment, so on and so forth. The other main pathway for conception of these questions was through Noahic genealogy, which is derived from Israeliyet, uh, so para-scriptural texts, apocrypha, um, in which Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafet, occupy different corners of the earth uh, and propound different racial groups from their offspring forward. And in particular, a, 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 a scenario in which this is discussed is with the curse of Ham. So this basically is a theory that is derived from a passage in the Bible that does not mention race, but rather mentions servitude in which Noah gets drunk. He's one of the first vintners in history, supposedly gets drunk uh, falls asleep, and his sons, Shem and Yafet, seek to cover his nakedness. Ham, meanwhile, mocks his nakedness. And Noah wakes and says, you know, how dare you do this? I'm going to curse you. And you will serve your brothers for perpetuity. And later on in rabbinic literature, in patristic literature, and in Islamic literature, uh, this merged with what people thought it meant to look servile. Uh, so Ham is considered to have been blackened by this curse and not just rendered a slave. So when Ham is said to occupy certain parts of the earth, uh, in Mas'udi, for example, it's said that he occupy, he and his offspring occupy uh, parts of the south, parts of the Maghreb, because in a lot of early Islamic, write, uh, early Arabic writings, I should say, the Berbers are black as well, um, and also is said to occupy certain parts of the Levant, and this is sort of a curly cue that has to be navigated because of the biblical tradition of Ham giving birth to Canaan, so the Canaanites and also the Nabataeans in certain conceptions. Um, so Ham is placed in all of these corners of the earth and given sort of the Bilad Sudan as they're broadly construed, the lands of the blacks, whereas Sham or Sam is given the Mediterranean portions of the world, the Arabian Peninsula, the Semites, if you will, um, and Yafet is given the more northerly portions of the world, Europe, Central Asia, so on and so forth. So a first instance within the Arabo-Muslim tradition is very hard to trace because, as I noted, these explanations show that certain category formations of these kinds had already um, taken place and were taken for granted in Islamic society, being that it's a product of late antiquity and that milieu. So with climate theories coming from the Greeks and Noahic genealogies coming from the sort of biblical and commentarial tradition. And the other thing that's very interesting about these sets of theories as they phase into Arabo-Muslim writings is that they show their multifariousness. So in addition to the Greek set of ideas tending towards this climate and humoral pathological set of explanations for why humans are different from one another, you also get other theories. Another famous one is Aristotle's concept of atavism, which says that you can skip generations and still manifest traits that are from several generations past. Meanwhile, on the other hand, with the more um, biblical and commentarial set of theories of human difference and how that works, you get not just the Noahic genealogies, but also the idea that these can be upset in various ways through a particularly stark interest that, uh, instance that happens in the story of Jacob, and that is that of image imprinting. And this is manifest in the Bible in an instance where Jacob needs to calve a certain color of sheep in his flock. So he puts uh, stripped branches 
next to their watering trough. And when they see the color of the branches, they think about it as they're conceiving their calves. Um, and then they birth animals that look the same color as the branches. And this is something that carries into the Arabo-Muslim tradition as well, this idea that you can, uh, through ideation, uh, especially if you're a woman, um, impress upon your body the thing that you have in your mind. So there are various traditions of saying, oh, if a woman has a pregnancy craving, your child will have a birthmark. But Ibn Hazm also talks about this in his talk on Hamama and quotes the Jacob situation because Ibn Hazm was very well read in the Torah and the Injil. Um, and says there's actually an instance of this happening to the effect of a complete re-racialization of the child. So there was a woman who had her husband with her and they were conceiving and she also had a portrait of a black man on her wall. And she saw this portrait and she fantasized about it and as a result the child was born black. So all of these different sort of theories of human difference uh, are brought to bear through prior traditions that predate Arabo Muslim writing by a long shot. Now, having said that, you asked about a first instance. Um, and as I said before, it's hard to trace a first instance, but in the ninth century, you do have an outpouring of literature that's sort of symptomatic of the explosion of Arabic writing more broadly because of the technological advancements brought on by paper being brought to the Middle East. And during this time, several genres develop that all simultaneously contain these ideas that I've already discussed and expand on them in various ways. One of them is the genre of rasail, or epistolary prose. So you get in that writings like al-Jahid's Fakhr al-Sudan al-Bidan, where he articulates a lot of these theories, including both Noahic genealogy and climatology. You get geographical writings uh, with, for example, al-Khwarizmi's Surat al-Ard, which is his expansion on Ptolemy's writings on the same which try to organize the world according to a scheme of climes. So it's asking not just how does climate operate, but where and in what ways. And then you, of course, have travel writing, begun with people like Abu Zayd al-Sirafi, who gives his account of China and India. So you have all of these different theories being brought to bear to explain the world as it is being delivered to an expanding Arab Muslim world. And an Arabo-Muslim world that is increasingly, because of the technologies at hand, able to express itself in new and innovative ways. Thank you. So there was a, a question about a hadith. Um, as, as far as I know, this, this hadith is fabricated. But And I asked that you correct the wording uh, when you when you explain it. But it has something to do with the zanj and how when he is hungry, he steals. And when he is when he is satiated, he, uh, he fornicates. And so even if this is not, uh, I mean, this most likely is not an authentic report, but it does make one wonder, th this is not how the prophet felt about something, but does it show something about how people might have felt, uh, which they later voiced through the prophet? Uh, mm -hmm. What, if anything, does this tell us about prejudice against certain uh, groups of people? Sure. So that version of the matan, as you translate it, is definitely present. Uh, when the zanj is hungry, he steals. When he's satiated, he um, copulates or fornicates. Um, and as you said, it has been judged to be da'if. It's a likely fabrication. The fact that these sorts of adages existed and that several of them got placed in the mouth of the prophet, retrojected onto his time and his way of thinking is something that's very commonplace and something that doesn't just extend to these particularly vitriolic attacks aimed at one specific group of people like the Zenj. Um, and I should add here, by the way, that the word Zenj is a bit of a moving target within descriptions of different peoples of the world. So in early writings, 
the word Zanj is often used as a byword for a Sudan to mean all black people and as a moniker for anyone who lived in sub-Saharan Africa or had lived in sub-Saharan Africa and trace their origins there. Uh, in later writings, uh, particularly in the geographic tradition, we see that the Bileda Sudan, the lands of the blacks, do not map directly with the Bileda Zenj, the lands of the Zenj, and that the Zenj come increasingly to be a particularized set of people um, native to the Swahili coast, as we would know it now, or places like Mozambique. So the Zenj were considered, in other words, a particularly dark set of Africans, and therefore there's a lot of particularly malignant commentary on their appearance. Um, but as I said before, this isn't the only instance that you have of um, attempts at basically vilifying difference or segregating humanity more broadly. So there's an entire corpus of hadith that center around this idea of kind tends towards kind or likes to be with kind. And this was basically a set of hadith that were motivated by the idea that people should remain in uh, enclavized into racially, culturally, ethnically homogenous spaces and groups and should not intermarry or interact in other ways. So there are many instances of these da'if uh, hadiths being used in this way uh, to, to foment not discord, but foment anxiety around the potentials for discord incurred by interacting with people who are not like you. And this doesn't just cross black Arab lines, it also crosses um, certain other lines as well. So for example, there is a lot of uh, fraught narratives about Byzantines and how women who are Rumia cause fitna in various ways. Now this is an inversion in some ways of the view of the Zenj in that the reason that the Rumiyat are causing fitna is because they are beautiful and desirable, um, but it still is linking up with this set of ideas about who is suitable for whom. Moving on from that question, uh, still related to it, but was a person's race ever used against them or mentioned uh, in a polemical context to take away confidence or reliability? Yes. So race is used as a tool in polemics, both fictional and real. Uh, perhaps one of the most notorious real examples of this is the Hijet or satire that Mutanebi gives as his parting salvo from the court of Abul Misk Kafur, uh, a Ikhshidid ruler in Egypt who was a former slave and a eunuch who had been manumitted and rose to the title of emir or prince. And in the case of Mutanebi, he writes for Kafur in his court and is patronized by him for a while. And oftentimes his poems, even when they're praising Madih poems towards Kafur have a sort of racialized subtext, but he really drills down on this in his, in his parting verses to Kafur, saying things like a very infamous line that gets repeated um, even to this day in modern political scenarios, but perhaps most disturbingly in, in a set of manuals for the purchase and transaction in slaves. And that line is, do not buy the slave unless you get the stick with him. Don't buy the slave unless you get the stick. And in a slaving manual um, by Al-Amshati, a Mamluk-era author in Egypt, this is said to apply specifically, just to go back to what we just talked about in the prior question, to Zenji slaves who are considered the worst of all slaves, they are prone to run away, all of this sort of stuff. He says, when Multan Nabi said this line, he was talking about Kafur, yes, but he was also thinking about the Zenj. So it gets used in polemic and then taken in this historicitous and very serious way by later authors, which is very interesting and disturbing. 
an example of fictional polemic on the grounds of race um, that really functions as not polemic, rather it's obverse apologetic, is found in Sirat Antar. Um, so Sirat Antar is a popular sira, uh, which I alluded to before, these popular Arabic epics. And its main character is a fictionalized, larger-than-life version of Antar ibn Shaddad, a pre-Islamic Jahiliya-era warrior poet who is known mostly for producing one of the ma'alaqat, one of the hanging odes that was um, used to decorate the Kaaba, supposedly. And in Sirat Antar's encomium, in its opening statement, it says that Antar, being a black slave who is nonetheless a more powerful and skillful warrior than the rest of the people of his tribe of Ebs, um, was sent to the pre-Islamic Arabs to sort of soften them up for the revelations of Islam uh, and to humble them and to cease them from their takabbur, to cease them from their boasting and their arrogance and their hator towards one another. So race there is being used less as a, a polemic against Antar and, and more as a polemical tool against the Arabs themselves for their racism. Now, having said that, one of the most common ways that race was used in polemic in actual political scenarios was to deflate someone's ego by hearkening either to their slave past, if they were a manumitted former slave, their slave ancestors, or their slave-like appearance. And we see this even earlier with the um, exegesis on Bilal and how he appears in tafsir. And blackness for all of this served as an associative tool and metaphor. So there was a direct conflation between one's blackness and one's slavery. You see this, for example, in Al-Andalus in the way that the Berbers are often discussed in certain texts, uh, particularly during periods of political unrest. And evidence of this is also to be found in the fact that people who started political regimes or who wanted to legitimate their political regimes would trace their lineage through fabricated anseb that were Arabized and create these ancestries for themselves that put them closer to what the ideal of a politician was considered to be. So for example, there are several East African dynasties that trace their lineage to the Qahtani tribesmen of the Hijaz. There are numerous um, Persian dynasties uh, or Persian groups that trace their lineage as Sharifan, for example, or trace their lineage to Isaac um, as this sort of close cousin of all of the Abrahamic milieu. Um, and you also see this with uh, the tracing of many West African groups of people to Bilal himself, this attempt to align themselves with the sort of sacred history of Islam, uh, if not directly as Arabs, but then as someone who has uh, relative who bore witness to its most glorious early days. So one of the ways that polemic was militated against, in other words, is by fabricating Arabness and trying to conjure it into your personal history in order to insulate you against being polemicized on the grounds of having a slavish background. Absolutely fascinating. Basically, uh, we're talking about race right now, and it's mm -hmm. mostly about um, naturally, I mean, it's about skin color. But I guess I'm wondering also what type of other qualities were uh, generalized. Yeah, that's a good <coughs> question. Um, it's something that a lot of authors discuss and that emerges particularly um, in writings like Al-Jahid's Fahr al-Sudan, but also Al-Qal al-Sadid fi ikhtiyar al-Imma wa al-Abid that I mentioned before, which is Al-Amshati's treatise on slaving. Um, the Zanj were thought to be depending on gender, either in the case of Zanji men, very suited to manual labor or to warfare as mounted, uh, as not mounted cavalry, rather, uh, as heavy infantry, explicitly not mounted cavalry. They did not rate at that level. 
um, or in the case of women, ideal as caregivers. Um, you see a big difference between women who are regarded in the uh, slaving tradition as suitable for being umahats walad, um, suitable for concubinage, and women who are suitable for other sorts of domestic tasks. So women who are hebeshiyat, for example, were thought to be lighter skinned than their peers, beautiful, have very uh, Arabesque features, um, and are often discussed as being uh, useful as umahat walad. Uh, you see that a little bit less with Zanjiet. Um, this is less attributable to racism as we would understand it as we would understand it today, and more to what we often call colorism. This idea that even within a specific race, which is to say a Sudan, black people, sub-Saharan Africans, there are certain traits that are viewed at, as more palatable um, or desirable, and certain beauty standards that are applied to them by outside observers. In this case, Arab. Um, slave owners. And another thing that Zanjar considered uh, known for within Jahid's treatise and also within these other types of works um, is their rhythm, their predisposition to dance, to loving music. Um, this is attributed in certain writings to their lack of aql, their lack of rationality, uh, wherein the climate theory is brought to bear as something that, you know, because they live in these hot environments, not only are their phys physiques altered, but also their minds are altered and warped by the heat. Um, and there's actually an adage that becomes very popular. Um, and this one, unlike the one we discussed before, is never put into the, the mouth of the prophet. If a Zanj person fell from the sky, he would fall on the beat. So it becomes part of this sort of aphoristic way of understanding these people that reduces them to this broad-based stereotype. Um, the types of beauty standards, though, that I mentioned earlier were often things that were framed not just as preferences. They were framed as something that was scientifically motivated and grounded. And this is because of the science of physiognomy being a tool through which certain prejudices about appearance ended up being justified. Physiognomy being the study of the human form. Uh, the word for it in Arabic is either amathresa, or the phrase I should say, uh, or uh, coming from the word meaning to track or to trace. So you're tracing the markings of a person's personality in their external features. And this was, again, something that was inherited in part from the Greco-Roman tradition. There are translations, for example, of treatises by Polemon and Pseudo-Aristotle um, that revolve around this idea that if you look at a person carefully, scrutinize, you know, what shape is their nose? What's the undertone of their skin? All these different things. You will be able to make effective decisions about where to place them within your life as a political advisor, as a military servant, as all of these different things. So a lot of the more mannered literature produced by Udabet, people who were schooled in adab, this sort of morally disciplining literature, would articulate these stereotypes that I'm talking about, but they would place them in the, the couching of and framing of these more scientific discourses as a tool of authority when they were voicing them. So it was never really just an I feel this way statement. It was a this is common knowledge statement. And what about stereotypes of, uh, of other groups like from Western areas or maybe people who are more Eastern, uh, any type of generalizations with regard to them? Sure. Yeah, so this is something that you see uh, very patently in the way that early Muslim militaries were arranged, especially in the late Umayyad, early Abbasid period. 
um, certain groups were thought of as having fitness for certain tasks. So I mentioned before that the Zenj were often, uh, or the Sudan in general, black people in general, were placed as um, heavy infantry. The Turks, Atrak, people from the Central Asian steppes, were thought of as being premier archers, premier mounted cavalry archers, uh, and were often used in this capacity. Turks are generally thought of as, uh, in these corpuses of literature, as being masters of warfare, but not often talked of as functioning in other social capacities and serving other social roles. Another example of this is people from Dailem, people from the area immediately south of the Caspian Sea in what is now Iran, uh, who were used in the military, usually also as mounted cavalry, um, but with swords or um, daggers, and actually were thought to have a special form of short sword, which Al-Jahid discusses, I believe, in his um, Al-Bayan wal-Tabin. Uh, during his discourse on Shorobia, when he discusses the various talents of the Persians, or lack thereof, um, he mentions that they are specialized swordsmen. Um, so in terms of masculine ideals, different groups of people from, from all the different sort of frontiers of the expanding Islamic world were thought to have suitability to these different social roles and tasks. Thank you. And I think this next question is kind of, you know, uh, uh, related to some of the ones that we've asked before. And how did ideals of beauty intersect with conceptions about race and things like this? Sure. Uh, so at the level of gender, very asymmetrically, to say the least. For example, we are used to seeing a specific image of a lover in a lot of early Arabic poetry, someone who is uh, a woman that is fair, dark-haired, red-lipped, thin-waisted, with thick hips, uh, the sorts of people who get elegized a lot. Uh, but there is a register of ghazal, or love verse, that really held space for elegizing a whole range of kinds of lovers, including black women. And oftentimes they were elegized explicitly on the grounds of their blackness. Uh, so you have the stock figure, for example, of the la'im, the person who comes in at the very beginning as the offstage blamer for a person being in love, that gives motivation to their poetry. And the la'im is not blaming them for falling in love at all or for not having a platonic sort of star-crossed um, affection for this person, the way that you see in terms of uh, vilification of Ishq and Shahwet in other verse, but rather because they have fallen in love with a black woman specifically. And then the counter to this is usually a series of cliches that align black women with things that are otherwise aesthetically pleasing or prized commodities uh, within the world of the text. So they are likened to musk, to ebony, a branch of ebony is a very common metaphor, to the darkness of a mole on a cheek, which was thought to be a mark of beauty, to a starless night, uh, things like this. And so this shows that there was space for articulating affections for and lusts for um, black women and for adulating certain qualities of theirs as being beautiful, including their blackness in and of itself. Now, this is in stark contrast to how you see men represented in not just um, poetry, but in other forms of literature and most notoriously probably popular literature like Al which uh, vilifies black men as being prurient, as desiring Arab women in ways that are dangerous. Um, and then you also have, of course, the entire corpus of the Ahribat al-Arab, the Crows of the Arabs, a coterie of pre and early Islamic black poets, um, many of whom trace their origins to Abyssinia or modern day Ethiopia and Eritrea roughly, and who 
spoke out about their blackness being vilified, being something that their peers malign, uh, with one example being a verse that was recited against the Abyssinian poet Heikulten, who um, was so motivated by this invective that he wrote an entire poem vaunting himself and his people. Uh, but the instigating remark was that he looked, uh, when he was wearing his white robes and turban, like the um, genitals of a donkey wrapped in cotton. So being vilified and denigrated on grounds of his appearance, uh, especially when he's in this sort of customary, perfectly nice dress, and that resulting in his poetic output. Um, and the reason, or a reason, for this disparity between the, the gendering of these beauty norms and the understanding of blackness uh, on the part of women as something that could be beautiful, whereas it's categorically not understood that way on the part of men, is symptomatic not just of popular perception, but also of law and social structure, in that it was perfectly acceptable uh, and widely done to take a concubine who was non-Arab and who was a woman, obviously, uh, and have children with her, and those children would probably look a little bit like you and a little bit like her, and there had to be some sort of um, way of talking about that that didn't undermine those children's existence and didn't delegitimize those children as equally human and equally special and all of these sorts of things. But on the other hand, the reverse rarely ever happens. Uh, it is a squandering of your nesab, it is a forsaking of your lineage to allow your daughter, for example, to marry a non-tribal Arab or non-Arab man. Uh, and so you see this manifest in a lot of the anxieties around these foreign men, these slaves who are in your household, for example, trying to be with the women of the household. Thank you. I don't know if um, that answers the question. <laughs> it does, it does. And okay. it will relate to the next couple of questions. And mm -hmm. so what did it mean to be masculine or feminine and how were normative conceptions challenged throughout different parts of the Muslim world? Yeah, so again, that's a very broad question. What does it mean to be masculine or feminine? And it's often something that is heavily delimited by a genre, but also throughout late antique and medieval societies, the norms to which you were expected to adhere according to your gender and according to your sexuality were also heavily conditioned by your age. Uh, and it's generally thought that, and one sees in the literary corpus that anything prepubescence, both male and female, is looked at as a sort of androgynous era. And a lot of literature, um, I'm thinking, for example, of the writings of Abu Nuwes, evinces a desire equally uh, for young beardless men and for young, you know, nubile women. Um, and so there's this, this sense that the norms of one's gender are circumscribed mostly by the age of the person and the power structures into which the person can phase in certain roles as a result of their age. Khaled al-Ruayhev has written uh, beautifully on this in his book Before, Homosexual Before Homosexuality in Islam, uh, which looks at the period of 1500 to 1800, uh, so the Ottoman era, and explores the fact that in a lot of sexual relationships, um, people were defined not by their desire for the same sex, but by the role that they occupied within the articulation of that desire. So it was, for example, very normal for an older man to have a, what we might call pederastic relationship with a younger man uh, and be in the dominant position sexually and penetrate the younger man, but doing the reverse was considered perverse and aberrant. Um, or it was very common for 
a man to have a similar relationship with a woman, but for certain kinks to be aberrant, for example. Um, now, in terms of norms of masculinity and femininity with respect to beauty, uh, Christina Richardson has written a wonderful book on difference and disability in the Islamic world, where she looks at treatises on ahat, ahat being the blights or blemishes that a person might have. Um, and because of the strong impetus to not participate in gossip or in, in negative, um, basically creating toxicity amongst the majalis. A lot of udabet, a lot of very learned people wrote about these ahet and then wrote basically saying you shouldn't denigrate people on these grounds. And if you read these texts negatively or against the grain, the things that were considered blights also, by contrast, give you a sense of what the ideal human form was. And Christina Richardson discusses it as, you know, an Arab man with a full beard, light skin, dark eyes, um, and who is not too tall, not too short, sort of a very average individual in a lot of respects. Now, this is an ideal that you see a lot in the types of texts that I work with, namely these chivalric epics, the Sir Sha'abiyah, in which being a man is often something that is very heavily limbed by you being able to be piously bellicose. Are you a good mujahid? And that determines whether you're being the ideal masculine archetype. Uh, but this is also something that, by contrast, makes it so remarkable that in the Sira tradition, instead of having a feminine foil to this, the ideal man is the mujahid, the ideal woman is someone who doesn't you know, per Quranic language to Baraj, who doesn't parade herself around and have this public life uh, that's soldierly, um, in the case of the Siras, you have this whole class of warrior women. And the way that the texts negotiate being able to have these warrior women out in the field interacting with a world of men uh, and doing their job successfully and therefore violating certain things that we might think of as conventional within a Sharia-focused context, things like khilwa or isolation, or the idea that um, per hadith you could have zina that wasn't penetrative, rather zina of the eye or of the tongue through interacting with the opposite sex, is by constantly fronting the fact that these women are chaste. So going back to this sort of prepubescent or pre-sexual androgeneity, you get a lot of women in these texts who are chaste, uh, and who lead a life as warriors as long as they are so, and then as soon as they get married, they disappear from the narrative. And this is something that Remke Crook has discussed in her Warrior Women of Islam book. Thank you. And then the final question that I have in, in this series of questions is, how diversely were race, gender, sexuality depicted in literature? And I know we touched up on this before, but I think it's important still to ask this question as it is. It's a great question, and it's one that I... Um, have the privilege of being able to see a lot of the beauty of given the corpus of texts that I work with in the form of the popular sierras because as they are popular, as they are anonymous and multi-generational, multi-person compositions, they tend to have something for everyone in them. There are different characters um, in terms of their race and ethnic background, as well as in terms of their gender and their gendered social role. So not only do you have, for example, these warrior women, but you also have women who are mothers, women who are domestic slaves, women who are occupying these more private roles in their lives. Now, in terms of how diversely race, gender, and sexuality is depicted in literature more broadly, um, again, I refer to popular literature in that, in Al-Tlayla Walayla, for example, The Thousand and One Nights, 
you have a set of characters who, yes, are sort of stock characters and oftentimes jocularly so. Uh, so you have the character of the oversexed Jaria, the hunchback, the priapic black slave, all of these sorts of people, but it's nonetheless princes of China and of Sasan, all of these sorts of things. But these are nonetheless a diverse range that bespeak sort of a context of interest in exotica or interest in bringing these different groups of people together and watching how they play with one another in a literary world. And you also have a diversity within these archetypes, particularly in more mannered literature of the Nudamet or boon companions in the Udabet, the people of, of literature and learning, uh, in the form of things like uh, Tanuki's writings, which were also within this broadly Asmar or night stories genre that Alfleila is in, but in a more popular vein, um, where he discusses all the different types of courtier. Uh, or you also have Al-Jahid writing about all the different types of Bukhalet, all the different types of misers. Um, so even within a stereotype, in other words, you have this assumed diversity or assumed panoply of t tales that you can tell about them. And while some of these tales took on a very stock quality or a very cliched quality, uh, there was always a sense in which one of the ways that you could achieve literarily was through the subversion of that or through creating surprise and wonder uh, in spite of that and bursting through it. So, so the world of Arabic literature in the pre-modern period is explicitly diverse and consciously so, although perhaps not in the ways that we necessarily always sympathize with or love to see, uh, and it makes for constant fun and exploration, let's put it that way. Thank you, and as we near the conclusion, I, I just wanted to briefly ask if, if Dr. Shine could just tell us a bit about uh, her own research while she was at the University of Chicago, as well as uh, current and future projects that, that she has. Sure, so my dissertation at the University of Chicago um, dealt with the black heroes of the popular Siras, of which there are three. Sirat Antar obviously has a half Ethiopian main character as, as its eponym in the form of Antar ibn Shaddad. Sirat Bani Hilal has Abu Zir al-Hilali, uh, who is born non-hereditarily and mysteriously black to his Arab parents uh, because his infertile or fertility struggling mother sees a crow one day and says, I wish that my son, even if he looks like this, could be just as mighty. And then he goes on to conquer significant portions of North Africa. And then there is the figure of Abdul Wahab in Sirat al-Amira Dat al-Himma, um, about whom I've also written an article uh, for the Journal of Arabic Literature. And he, too, is non-hereditarily black, but through a set of scientific and syllogistic coincidences that prove very interesting and motivating to the text. So my dissertation was on their literary functions and their, also their ethical functions, the importance of having these characters um, as the main protagonists in this body of texts for social history and for literary history. And I've continued that work since uh, at my postdoc at the University of Colorado in Boulder, where I currently am, and very happily so. It's been a pleasure to be here. And it has since then been being refined into a book, the title of which is very tentatively Black Knights, Arabic Epic and the Making of Medieval Race. And I also have a series of essays mostly pedagogical essays forthcoming in a number of volumes by both Rutledge and the MLA on how to teach race in the classroom when you are doing a Middle East studies or an Islamic studies course. Uh, so I look forward to people interacting with those and engaging with them. Thank you so much. And again, it's been an absolute pleasure. With that, I would uh, like to say thank you. Mm -hmm.